Welcome to the Soccer Metrics Podcast, a discussion and interview series with leading names in the soccer analytics world. Here's your host, the founder of Soccer Metrics, Howard Hamilton. Welcome to episode number five of the Soccer Metrics Podcast, recorded on the 7th of November, 2013. Soccer Metrics Podcast is an information and interview series with leading figures from the soccer analytics world with occasional forays into the broader worlds of football business and sports analytics. In this episode, I'm pleased to have on the show one half of the duo who wrote The Numbers Game, a work that has really brought soccer analytics to the broader soccer-loving public. He is an economist by training and a visiting professor at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth University, David Sally. David, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Hey, Howard. It's great to be here. Uh, It's really a pleasure to spend some time with you. Thanks. For the benefit of our listeners, could you talk a bit about your background and your previous works? Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm a, as you mentioned, I'm an economist. Uh, I got my PhD in economics from the University of Chicago, and I'm old enough that I'm actually was in the vanguard of economists who became known as as behavioral economists and we we actually trained at the feet of some of the eminent uh, people who developed that fee- that subfield within economics uh, in fact back in 1994 there was a su- there was the first behavioral economics summer camp um, and our counselors as it were in this uh, in this camp were, Danny Kahneman, uh, Dick Thaler, and Colin Kammerer, all of whom are very eminent in the world of uh, behavioral economics. And they trained myself and a number of other young people who were interested in the field. So I got, I got involved in behavioral economics early in my academic career, and I went on to do research on um, behavioral game theory, um, looking at what kind of factors uh, – uh, affect people's willingness to compete, willingness to cooperate, uh, and willingness to pursue their own self-interest or the more um, general common interest in a particular strategic setting. Uh, personally, sports-wise, I grew up in Chicago. I basically grew up in Chicago as a typical Chicago kid, which means I played a ton of basketball on the playground. Um, uh, just hours and hours of basketball. I also played a lot of baseball. Um, uh, and actually we even, it was, it was cold enough back in those days. We even played a lot of, uh, ice hockey in the winter. Uh, but basketball was my, my passion growing up. And, um, and I pitched, but despite that, I was only, I'm I'm only unfortunately six, three and not blessed with the level of athleticism that one needs to play basketball in college. So I actually pitched in college. Um, I was a lefty uh, starting pitcher who relied on um, craft and guile and not, a, not an outstanding fastball. But, uh, but my whole life I've been interested in sports and numbers, and I grew up in a very mathematical family. Both my parents were mathematicians. So it's been natural for me to be interested in sports and numbers since I really got involved in sports. Uh, Back to the classic American kid, um, uh, young baseball fan collecting cards and 
and uh, being more interested in the uh, statistical tables on the back of the card than the picture on the front. Um, so that's a bit of, that's a bit of my background in terms of of my academic work and my my background in sports and. I guess it was those it was those elements that I brought to the joint project with Chris that resulted in in the numbers game. I know that Chris Anderson was a former goalkeeper and played in the lower leagues in Germany, but you're a bit like me in that you never played the game. So how did you come to like soccer? Yeah, I you know it's funny because uh, as I said, I grew up in an academic family, so. Uh, that I actually played soccer in sixth grade in middle school. Um, we we had a couple of sabbatical years. My parents, as I said, were both mathematicians. We had a couple sabbatical years while I was growing up in Princeton, New Jersey, where I uh, was able to see some green grass as opposed to the south side of Chicago. And I actually played goalkeeper, ironically enough, in the sixth grade middle school um, team the first time I ever got to play soccer first time yeah it was not a, it was not a game in those years that that we played in Chicago so my my memories however were pretty scarring uh, my my one distinct memory of of uh playing goalkeeper for Valley Road Middle School in Princeton was I let in a, a ridiculously soft goal in some match I can't I can't remember uh uh who it was against but I just remember the ball uh, just uh, rolling slowly right under my side as I as I tried to dive for it, it was it was pretty humiliating. But uh, but no, you're right. I don't. Um, I think I followed. I think I followed soccer at an above average level for for Americans. Uh, I've certainly always followed the World Cup. Uh, tried to watch as much as I could uh, when I could. And of course, we we weren't blessed with a lot of coverage when I was growing up. So I think for me, I really uh, there were two there were two factors that got me into the sport. One is my uh, oldest son, who's now twenty five, um, about um, eight years ago, really started to get into soccer. Um, he started to follow um, in, in in nice front running American kid style. He started to follow Chelsea. Uh, it was some of Chelsea's better years, and uh, <laughs> that always makes me smile. Americans are great for picking the front running team. We well, just it, we love to be winners. So yeah, I I remember reading something about uh, the reason why so many Americans um, follow Chelsea, and one of the responses was their great tradition and things <laughs> like that. And I found it really hard not to laugh because yeah. you know, if you've if you've been following English football for twenty years, you know that even starting Premier League. Chelsea was pretty much an afterthought. Right, right. <laughs> so, it, you know, it, it tells you how much things can change in football, but it, 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 it does make me smile. It, it, oh, oh, totally. It's like all the Dallas Cowboy fans of a certain age, of, of people around my age in the 50-year-old 50, 50 or so who are scattered about uh, America, you know. That's just, uh, that's that's a characteristic that we, uh, that's endearing, I suppose. Uh but yeah, no. So we started to watch a lot more Premier League football and football of all types, um, uh, and especially Chelsea matches. So I, so when Chris approached me um, a little over three years ago, I guess roughly three years ago, um, I was kind of I was kind of primed to be interested in doing uh, doing some work on on soccer and soccer analytics, uh, but. 
the truth is, and, and, and I often bring this up, I really got to know the game and the sport through working on the book. And uh, I am much more conversant now than I... Than, than I've ever been in my life. I've watched much more football in the last three years than I watched certainly in the in, in the previous fifty. Um, so it's it, it, and I think what's interesting for people who have and there are people out there and there are readers out there who have a fear that the numbers are going to somehow ruin the game and oh it it, it 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 won't make it a pleasurable experience anymore. And and my experience has been just the opposite. It was through working on the numbers and through working on the book that I got to really know the sport and love the sport. Um, so so for me, it's been uh, it, uh, my path to loving the sport was really through the numbers. That's a really interesting point, and I think that goes to one of the reasons why I started Soccer Metrics. Um, you know, you could go through the typical business reasons or even academic reasons. But I think the reason I started it was so that I could understand the game better. Yeah. Because people of a typical analytical mindset are really comfortable embracing things by studying the numbers and how things relate to each other quantitatively. So I think you make a really good point about that. Yeah, no, it's been it, 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 it's it's really true, and 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 I think I think at the same time I can, and I'm sure it's the same for you uh, that that even coming through the sport analytically, uh, you realize you realize how important the emotions are, and it's not the and and you can experience that, and you can appreciate, and you can fully fully appreciate it, um, uh, and and there's no reason that. Uh, you know, there's some sense that well, maybe the numbers will crowd all that out, and I don't, I don't think the numbers, the numbers in an analytical approach, leave you um, in in many instances with a full appreciation for why why the emotion is so important, why the backing of the home uh, supporters are so important, why the chemistry out on the field uh, is so important among the players. Okay, and let's dive a little bit into the book and sure. explore that theme a little further. And I want to start with, I think in the book there was this figure, I think was one of, I feel one of the iconic figures in, in the book where you're comparing the number of opportunities to score in, in a game. And you're comparing soccer, American football, basketball, yeah. baseball. And what's really striking, even to those of us who know that soccer is inherently a low-scoring game, just how few chances there are to score compared to other sports. Does that factor into just the, the huge expressions of euphoria that soccer fans feel when a team does indeed score? Oh, I, I think without question, right? It's it's soccer. Soccer is a sport of delayed gratification, which is fundamentally and philosophically one of the reasons that some Americans have a problem have a problem with it. We're not really a delayed gratification kind of society, uh, you, you know. And you, and if you look at you, you and if. In specific terms, when it comes to other sports, of course, a lot of the a lot a lot of the rule changes in other team sports in North America have been all to promote more shooting, more scoring, and 
And soccer resists that. And there's no, there's no question that the, um, that the euphoria that comes out is, is partly, is partly the factor of delayed gratification. And that goes to the, the, the rarity of scoring. And then I think for many goals, as we, as we document in the numbers game, and, and, and as I think you and other, other people who have watched a lot of soccer know, it just, a, a given goal may come out of nowhere in the sense that all of a sudden it's created and there's something, there, there's a, there's a random element and a deflection or a, um, an intercepted back pass. And all of a sudden there's a goal seemingly out of nowhere. And it's that, I think, I think part of the euphoria comes from that surprise element and the and the effects of chance and randomness on scoring right one of the takeaways that i had from that plot was that it really communicated to me how how useless it is to talk about changing the game or tinkering the game or even in the concept of american soccer Mm. americanizing it through shootouts or the offside line or things like that because because you, you really can't incre- significantly increase the number of scoring chances in soccer to um, so that approaches even, say, baseball, much less yeah. other sports, right. without changing the fundamental structure of the game and changing in a way that longtime soccer fans would not like and might bring on other people from other sports because one yep. of the arguments to changing rules, particularly heard in this country is that well changing rules is great if you bring in other you know people from other sports into the game but the thing is my takeaway from the plot was that soccer is not like that Mm. you really do have to appreciate on its own terms and talking about constant rule changes and tinkering and altering the change to improve scoring whether enlarging the nets or things like that. Right. It's really useless uh, unless you want to change it in a way that makes the game unrecognizable from what it is right now. I think that, I think that's right. It, it, soccer, soccer for better or worse, uh, needs a certain number of nil nil matches. And it certainly needs a huge number of one nil one, one and two, one matches. If it starts, um, if it starts becoming a five four six five six three kind of uh, game, it'll be a very it, it would be a very very different kind of game, and um, and I think that's you know that's 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 right. I think that what I can say as an American is a bit of an outsider to it. I'd love there to be. I don't need more scoring. I'd love there to be more shooting. I'd love there to be more attempts, um, uh, and I'm I have a personal I have a personal grudge. I think that I, I think in terms of rules, I and I, I don't I don't know if Chris shares this at all with me, but I, per, personally, I have, and, and and this is partly as a game theorist, I, I have some problems with end game rules, um, uh, especially in tournament in tournament settings. Uh, I'm fine with ties. For the league, I think that's totally right. But I, I personally hate the penalty shootout for uh, for a way to determine matches. But uh, that will get us off track if we go if we go on about that. But I think well, you're right. I think you're let's get right. On, let's get on that track. Actually. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, 
my personal my personal feeling of the penalty shootout is that you know, I guess to paraphrase Churchill, it's probably the worst way to break ties in the international tournament, save for uh-huh. all the other alternatives. <laughs> yes, well, that's right. Um, that's right. So if, if uh, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to have the conversation about penalty shootouts that they're unfair, they're arbitrary, they're things, you know, things of that nature. Right. But um, I think the the previous accepted way of selling ties in those situations is to have a replay. And right. that's just, that's just not going to happen in modern football. No, so no, what's you can't the... do that. And then, and then the other, the other way, the other, the other way I was shocked to find, uh, this happened, I believe, I don't, I don't know which world cup they, they actually did, um, determine it by a, by a flip of a coin. It's like, Oh my God, it's crazy. Uh, you know who advanced? World, I don't remember World Cup being decided on that, but maybe it was a, maybe it's maybe it's the uh, European Cup. Um, yes, uh, uh, there was a yeah. Euro, I think there was a European Championship that was decided on a flip. A European Championship qualifier or sign. Yeah, that, I think it's something like that. Yeah, yeah, think, yeah. I think it involved Italy. Uh, yeah. Maybe some people will point that out. Right, um, but I do think it involved Italy. Um. For me, and again, I'm getting way off. Uh, I don't want to uh, step outside my outside my um, sweet spot here. But for me, the best, one of the best experiences as a sports fan is um, the Stanley Cup. Is endless overtime. Um, that is uh, extra period uh, hockey in in the Stanley Cup playoffs is the for me the best i i love it i will stay up till two in the morning along with those poor exhausted guys out there so if i if i were czar of football i would i would have them play till um till there is a winner and what i would do obviously we're we're gonna have guys dying on the pitch i would i would loosen up substitution roles and and I don't know what other change that that might not be enough to produce a winner within an you know a goal within an hour. The question is what what then other changes do you need? And and I I don't know. I mean I I know if we got down to a one v if we made it a three v three match out on the pitch, somebody would score pretty quickly. So I have heard other people suggest that we should start at some point in overtime start pulling guys off the pitch so you could pull a guy off the pitch and you could be allowed a substitute for each extra period of five minutes or something i don't know um it would you does bring change back, the game would you bring back the golden goal rule uh that's an interesting idea um i don't i don't know like i i i, I yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure. I would. I'm not. I mean, the big problem for me with the penalty kick is is because I think of uh, I I have a hard time thinking of soccer without trying to compare it to the other sports. Um, I just I, I don't the anal the analogy thinking about deciding a baseball game based on. I mean, the obvious example would be we're tied after nine innings. Now we now we go to the home run derby to decide the the game. And that just seems it seems crazy to me. It just uh, it takes, uh, and as I think as we talk about in the in the numbers game, for better or worse, the 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 essence of the game is it's a, it is a defensive game. And now we're going to decide the match uh, in, in a format where there is basically 
nothing resembling defense other than the poor goalkeeper who's sitting there trying to guess the right direction. Um, so it's a pro- it's a problem, but I don't you know that that's the the truth of the matter is when the penalty shootouts happen, it's it's incredibly exciting and uh, and it is true that it saves players' health and it, at least it saves their physical health. I don't know what it does to them mentally. The the amount of pressure uh, when they're striding up to the uh, to the spot to take a a penalty kick to decide the World Cup. My gosh, I mean, what what amazing pressure and stress. But um, yeah, or even even to the side league championships because absolutely. I know. I know of at least one or two situations. The most famous one that I remember is um, 1994 Spanish League, mm. where Deportivo La Coruña had, had a last-minute penalty, and um, the Brazilian, well, their first choice, um, their first first choice penalty taker had already been substituted. Their second choice was the captain, uh, Bebeto, yeah. you know, the Brazilian Brazilian mm-hmm. star, and he refused to take it. Yeah. Which I, I even I think about that today. I just thought it was just really galling, and yeah. it fell to uh, Miroslav Dukic, uh-huh. and he just rolled a really soft penalty that was easily saved. And right. I can't, I can't imagine, I can't imagine having a last minute penalty of the last kick in the last game of the season yeah. to decide the league title. Uh, the emotions going. Uh, I, I don't know. It, at first, when I heard that Bebeto refused to take it, I thought that it, that was just extreme cowardice on his part. Right, but right. when I think about some more, it's like, would I be? Would I? He was extremely rational, right? Being extremely rational, like you understand <laughs> yeah. it, but on the other hand, you know, you're paid to, you're paid really good money to to assume responsibility in those situations. Right. So, right. yeah, it, it's it's really, really interesting. Yeah. I, I do agree with you. I, I, I think you probably, um, to, to quote, as you did, to quote Churchill, it, it, is this the best of a lot of other bad alternatives? It, it, there are a lot of worse ways to decide, um, to decide what, you, you know, a, a one-off match like that. So uh, it's not the worst way to do it. It's just there's something, there's something about it that just – is uh, it just it just doesn't it, it, it eliminates so many of the fundamentals of the of what the game is about and what a given match is about that it's it, it's tough um, uh, you know and it's tough in ice hockey too when they decide it was shootouts uh, but somehow it's even worse in soccer. Yeah, it, it's interesting you say that because I don't like the I don't like deciding a game on a shootout in hockey any more than I really like no. in soccer i think it's that in hockey i do see it being an unnatural part of the game because yeah. it um i don't know my, my impression is that a penalty a penalty shot in hockey happens a lot less frequently than a penalty shot in soccer oh oh i no, i think that the, the data is clear on that no absolutely absolutely it's very rare in in hockey yeah Right. No, and it, and in that sense, you're right. There's certainly more more penalty kicks in in the flow of the regular match than uh, than uh, in soccer, for sure. Right. So let's get back to the book. Okay. And um, let's talk about how behavioral science contributes to 
uh, to soccer analytics. And mm. I felt that just from reading the book that two, two ways that behavioral science uh, contribute is through understanding defensive play mm-hmm. and through the concept of negative improvements. Uh, hmm. The idea of changing, improving your weakest link, yep. the idea of reducing mistakes, the idea right. of conceding fewer goals. Right. Instead of doing positive improvements like creating right. more shots or scoring more goals and things like yep. that. But it seemed to me that the negative improvements were even more important than um, than the positive improvements that everyone sees. And I think there are some you know, positive biases or or other cognitive biases. Could you go into detail on that? Was that where, and I think in, when the book started discussing those topics, mm-hmm. that's where I started to see your contribution. Uh, was that accurate? Yeah, no, well, uh, I should say both, both uh, our process for the writing the numbers game was um, exhaustive and exhausting. Uh, both Chris and I wrote uh, our, our process was this i think um you can probably and you know you know both of us quite well so you were probably very accurate in this each of us um took a first draft of a particular chapter my chapters tended to be toward the back half of the book and chris's chapters tended to be toward the front in terms of the first draft but we went through we passed from the first draft, we've then handed over to the other guy and exhaustively worked through it, um, uh, so that we got a. We really tried to make sure that we got a blending of um, of our voices in the final in the final uh, version of the book, um, to the point of of passing chapters back and forth and back and forth. We we're, we're just. Um, so sick of a given chapter after, after you know, after a month of working on it back and forth. The the the, the I I will say by way of an aside, the the great thing I found with the book is, um, by the end of a month like that of working on a chapter, I'd be so sick of it. But then with a little, with a little time off, I'd go back to it and I'd say, oh, this is actually you know to be to to. to to, to lack a little humility, oh, this is actually pretty interesting. This is pretty good. Yeah, um, I, it, it's like but you on, just get so sick of it. I, it's crazy. It's like working on dissertations. Really. It, it 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 was it, it was it I was, was just it, yeah. I was just really sick of working on my dissertation. I went yeah. back to it a few years later, and even a few months later, and looked at it and said, you know, this was actually pretty good, or yeah. actually kind of decent. Yeah. No. So, but anyway, back to the point about some, yes, yeah, some of the, some of the, um, the, 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 the book and you will know this well, um, and anybody who knows the, the, the book is actually just applied social science, social science applied to football. We, we did a lot of the things and used a lot of, um, a lot of ideas that we thought might have some, uh, power to illuminate what goes on in football and some of the techniques in terms of, of some of the analytical things that we do in the book were very much borrowed from um, c- certainly from my background as a behavioral economist and Chris's background as a political economist who does a lot of work on larger data sets about um, 
uh, you, you know, cross-national comparison of public opinion polls. And so he's, he's really good at, Chris is amazingly good at um, taking a data set and building in different levels of it. So his levels might be party, nation, um, economic region, but now they became uh, backline, uh, club, uh, league kind of stuff. So he, he can really um, um, take a set of data and and parse it apart by level in a way that, that few people in the world can, which is really which is really cool to have. On my end, I, I, I am, as, as we started out our discussion with, uh, I really am a behavioral economist. So I think I think of um, ways to combine economic principles with some of the more robust findings from psychology, from cognitive psychology or social psychology. And, and one of them that we draw on, I mean, there's two of them that you cited that we draw on in the book. One is just the, the very fundamental fact about human perception and the way that we we our, our, our brains are wired so that we pay much more attention to the things that are there um, than the things that aren't there. Um, and you could think of natural evolutionary reasons for that. Uh, but it, it, we, we try to tie that idea that we have that we have just a, a, a bit of a blind spot or pay less attention to things that aren't there as a way to say that 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 is one of the reasons that um, defense and defensive maneuvers and things that happen out on the pitch that you that or, or things that could have happened on the pitch but didn't are less noted because uh, that's just fundamental to human psychology so so that so the great example I think the prime example for listeners of of, of the show might be that that is in the book is the story that circulates about Alex Ferguson and his evaluation of Yap Stom when Stom's number of tackles started to decline and Ferguson said oh I know what's going on the guy's starting to lose it he's he's no longer as active out on the out on the pitch and he he sold Stom and he looked back on it and of course it turned out he sold him um, earlier than he should have uh, Stom went on to have a, a number of great seasons and Part of that was that he no longer needed to tackle. Uh, he he was he, his positioning had continued to improve defensively. That a tackle was no longer necessary. He had his man marked, and he um, and so that it, it's that example that 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 is that is one of of a number that we talk about in the book that that suggested well defense is really more about things that don't happen than things that happen, and so it's harder for us to evaluate. It's harder for us to appreciate. Yeah, that, that's that's a really good point. Um, I guess in, in the course of doing this book, um, were there any results that really surprised you as far as they didn't quite make intuitive sense, but once you saw the results, it really changed the way that you saw the game? Yeah, I, I think there, there, there's there's two that I would point to. One is, and and they're both, the first one is incredibly simple. Uh, the second one's a little more complicated. The, the, the first one is just doing the simple arithmetic to figure out how how uh, how much possession does the average Premier League field player, let's take goalkeepers out of it, is the average field player actually in possession of the ball? 
and um and the number is 53.4 seconds at least it was on the on the years that we looked at um and i and it makes total sense when you divide up 90 minutes and the amount of and the amount of possession and the amount of time that the ball is in play which is not nearly close to 90 minutes it's cl- it's it's a little more than 60 minutes depending on the particular clubs involved in the match and i think it's and, slower than that but and it might yes it, 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 oh yes you've done a lot of work on this so but but just that fact that guys are in possession of the ball for less than a minute it just it, it lets you know that well to really understand the game you have to you have to stop watching the ball there's so much going on but much most of what they're doing out on the pitch is off the ball uh so that was kind of a and that's just some simple arithmetic in terms of of, of possession the, the the second thing that took a little more that took a little more work uh, on our part, and and I think we, we spend a good part of a, a a chapter looking at this in the numbers game, and that is the similarity of the top four leagues in terms of some of the basic outputs, the number of shots, the number of goals. Um, I I didn't grow up in the sport. Chris grew up in the sport, but even coming late to the sport, you hear you hear about national differences in the way soccer's played and the differences between the between the leagues the uh the toughness of the premier league the elegance of la liga and so on and so forth and for us it was just interesting to see that there are there are some differences across the leagues but in terms of some of the some of the key i think what we called outputs of of the football of the soccer played in the in the four top leagues in europe they're amazingly similar. It's it's almost impossible to tell one league apart from another, and that spoke to us. Uh, I think we bring the idea of kind of technological technical convergence um, in terms of 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 the way that uh, in, in a number of different industries, uh, ultimately, uh, however different the culture of different companies, oftentimes the outputs. Um, uh, the products that they're producing or the services uh, really converge on a on a single model, um, uh, and it speaks to knowledge and technology being shared across the, right. the those companies. Yeah, I think you make a really great point there. Just, I think if you look in automotive industry or the aircraft industry or just about anything mechanical, you may start out with wildly different designs, and over time, yep. things converge to a standard, a standard set of designs. Um, yep. You know, Boeing's Boeing's airplanes externally don't look that much different from Airbus's airplanes right. externally, and you can say the same thing with commuter jets. Um, I, I I thought that finding on the big four leagues or big five leagues mm-hmm. was. Um, I thought that was the biggest result of the book, or the mm. I think even more so than the idea of randomness, because mm-hmm. I know that you guys attracted a lot of press on the finding that half of the game is is random, yeah, or half of results could be explained through random events. Right. I feel an even bigger result is showing that despite the apparent differences in culture between the big five leagues. And we yeah. all think that 
there are some advantages or disadvantages of watching play in England or Spain or, you know, Germany has the fan culture and tickets are really affordable and things like that. But when you look, when you look at the on-field product, there's not that much difference. And it seems, uh, it seems to me that people would have a much easier time accepting the idea of randomness in football Mm. than the idea of the big five leagues not really being all that different. Right. Right. Well, it it is, it it is a great example of the way that um, numbers can cut through our perceptions, right? That, that, uh, uh, Serie A, it's a, it's a, it's a defensive league. It's uh, they play football in a certain way, and that's and that's the way it is. But the, no, the numbers, the numbers, and and this is this is the, the the beautiful part of the numbers is that they can they can help you understand a, a little more clearly when what you think you're seeing is actually an illusion on certain dimensions. That that yes, maybe the style looks a little bit different, but no, these leagues are not numbers wise. They are they are incredibly they are incredibly similar, and um, that's what that's what numbers have the power of doing. They have the power of of helping an observer check his or her perceptions against another version of of um, of reality, and one that's you know one that that you you wouldn't want to say is necessarily more true, but uh, there might be a certain consistency to it uh, that you get from the numbers that you don't get from your own perceptions. But, but it is that, 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 that is, that is what numbers and analysis have done throughout history is to, is to help us check our perceptions. You know, the world, the world is flat. Well, sure looks flat, you know, um, but, but no, when you look carefully, no, the world's not flat. Um, Right. Um, I think another area of analysis where the book kind of changed my perception was on the issue of short corners. Mm-hmm. Um, I first paid attention to them during the 94 World Cup, and I absolutely hate them because I thought they were a waste. Yeah. But when, when the book start to discuss how Barcelona used short corners to maintain possession instead of create a goal score, instead of create a direct goal scoring opportunity, right. I thought, you know, that's actually a really clever use of a corner kick. Um, The question I have is, I think there's a correlate to that, is that there are so many free kicks where people just go straight for goal. Why aren't more free kicks taken short to maintain possession, create an even better scoring opportunity? I, I I have the same question you do. Um, that that would be uh, uh, the the analogy to to and, and we haven't done any research on this yet, and I haven't um, uh, I haven't seen anybody else, and I, I don't know if you have Howard seen anybody else do any work on it, but I don't know. It's it seems to me that the corners finding would the the the, the the logical next step is to suggest that yes, there's probably too many too many free kicks from too many parts of the pitch that are tossed in a goal instead of being taken short or being taken as a as a as a pass in some form to to uh, a well positioned teammate. So that seems I'm with you, um, but I haven't seen we, we haven't done any work on that, and I haven't seen anybody else do 
anything it, on that yet. It just it happens so rarely. Um, I remember a '98 World Cup where Argentina scored the equalizer against England, and it was on a short free kick. It was just yep. a simple pass around the wall that created right. an embarrassed scoring opportunity. Right. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. But uh, I'm hoping to see more teams do that. I was hoping it would catch up as a trend, and right. I never saw that. Yeah. So I was kind of disappointed. No, no, no. And and you're right. There be there would be a problem with doing some analysis on it because you're we're talking about. A, a, a very small, a very small set of examples. Uh, the thing about corners that I just uh, to, to back up a sec, it was that finding. So, so this book came about as, as uh, just to let your listeners know, Chris, along with you and along with a number of other people, were in the was in the vanguard of of people who started blog, blogging about soccer and. Uh, and you guys that are an illustrious group of uh, and, and becoming more illustrious all the time, but but you guys were in the vanguard of of the original soccer bloggers taking advantage of the data that was there. And I I got involved in this process because um, Chris had been blogging. I think he lagged you by a few months or so, but he he had, he had been blogging for uh, six months or so, and. Um, he was starting to he was starting to get some feelers from clubs and from data providers who were interested in talking to him about a variety of opportunities and he came to me as chris chris and i are neighbors in ithaca new york and uh i used to teach at cornell with his with his wife kathleen and so we we've known each other for a lot of years and so he he, he came by my house to have a brainstorming session and tell me a little bit about what he was doing and I hadn't I think I had I had checked out his blog a little bit but I hadn't really read it carefully and and the first finding he, he so so uh so we had a great day of discussion and it was out of that having a really fun time talking about talking about soccer and everything that was going on in the world that that he he was kind enough to invite me in on the project we decided to throw in together on it but but I remember that the the one thing he said um he started telling me about some of the things he was finding from his initial forays through the data. And he said, I, I took a look at corners. And I said, oh, man, I, I, I know what you found. I mean, corners are really valuable. That's like, I, I know, I'm excited when I watch a match and I see, I, see, uh, I see a club get a corner and I can hear the fans cheer and it's all great. He said, he said no, they're not. He said they, they, and he had done his early work that they really – they really weren't strongly correlated with any with any kind of um, increase in likelihood of victory or points per match or number or the or the goal scoring opportunity, and I was blown away. I just thought, oh my god, that's so that that is great. That is just amazing. So it was really that, that it was really that corners finding that got me hooked on this whole project and thinking that wow, the numbers really can make you think about things differently. Yep. So, so David, how do you measure heart? <laughs> <laughs> oh, Howard, I wish, I wish, I wish we knew. I wish we knew. You know, I, I, uh, yeah, it's a great. Well, well you, 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 you uh, just well, open why, up. Why don't you tell you the open story up the guy's it. chest. You take it out. You weigh it. You, and then you put it back in. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, why, don't you, why don't you tell the story to illuminate people who haven't read the book yet? Yes. <laughs> or so a little bit. So we were doing, um, 
we were doing a a a, a little project for a Premier League club, uh, taking a look at at some factors in uh, in the team's performance, and uh, and we had found we had found some you know we had found some some potentially interesting things, and uh, the story goes we 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 that the uh, our our findings were passed along to. The manager of the club and the manager, um, as 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 many English managers are wont to do, uh, uh, took a look at the findings and said, "Well, they can't they can't measure the size of a man's heart. That's all I know." And and of course, ironically, we can kind of measure at least literally. We can certainly measure the size of someone's heart. Um, uh, but it's I think that that it's a it's a telling it's a telling story in that. It, it, it speaks to why analytics are at an early stage when it comes to most clubs. Uh, the manager um, uh, managers tend to be a fairly conservative lot, uh, especially in England, and they are they are naturally resistant to change. And it's not taking the big picture. That's that's that is what innovation typically fights in any kind of corporate or company setting or organizational setting or industry setting it's there there are there are accepted ways of doing things and there's accepted ways of of understanding performance in uh in soccer and uh and those people who have grown up knowing that and being well versed in that way of doing it are are naturally kind of resistant to to analytics and to other ways of looking at it so measuring measuring a guy's heart um is in the sense of measuring effort and measuring motivation, we actually know from from other areas of life that there are there are some ways that companies you know that a company like Google tries to measure the motivation and tries to work with the intrinsic motivation of its employees. Absolutely, um, we 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 can can we. Can we measure it? Uh, can we measure it a hundred percent? No, of course not. But are are there ways out there of beginning to to use um, uh, some some rational ways of, of of starting to measure those kind of things? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, yeah. The manager may be flipped, but I do feel that um, that the that the input of psychological factors is in an embryonic stage in soccer yep. analytics. Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, because they are those quote unquote intangibles that by, by their nature being intangible are really hard to quantify. So right. what kind of proxy do you use for quantifying effort, motivation? Um, you know, do people, you know how do people perform in high pressure situations? Right. It, yeah, it's really difficult to to quantify. Yeah, it is. It is, and 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 what we know from the early from the early attempts at it is is kilometers covered probably isn't really the best measure of it, right? It's just uh, uh, that 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 might be relevant for some players in some positions and some and some clubs but it's certainly many players in many positions that's not a good measure of of kind of what their total what their total effort is out on the pitch okay so can analytics produce better soccer and by better soccer i mean 
more aesthetically appealing soccer? I, I, I certainly, I certainly hope so. Um, uh, but I don't, I don't think we'll know that answer till we, till for another 10 years when analytics is thoroughly, thoroughly embedded in the sport. Um, I, 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 I have a hard time thinking that it won't, um, that it, that, that it will, uh, my hope is that it eliminates a lot of the, a lot of the, that in eliminating a lot of maybe the inefficiencies of the sport, it will, uh, it will lead to, it will lead to better spacing on the pitch. Better spacing on the pitch means I have more room for my technical geniuses to make the kind of plays, whether it's individual or whether it's amazing through balls, uh, that just set our hearts aflutter. I mean, that just, you go, oh my God, I don't know. You know, uh, there was a pass, I was watching the, the, uh, Barca Milan game last night, uh, or I was watching it on tape delay. I taped it and Xavi made a pass to, oh no, it was Messi made a pass to, um, Oh God! Now I can't remember who it was, but it was just—it was—it was miraculous. It was a miraculous. Uh, it was—it was through a miraculously tiny wedge of space and curled almost perfectly. It didn't quite come off, but curled almost perfectly. Uh, and it was just—it—it it, it was the kind of moment that that soccer provides. It's just amazingly beautiful. Uh, and I would hope that analytics would help create elim- el- eliminate some of the some of the crappy part of the sport with with um sideline passes being just intercepted and with kind of a churn that the, the kind of random churn at midfield uh that that sometimes bogs the game down but we we won't really to be honest we won't really know until uh, for another 10 years all right we're at a very interesting stage in soccer analytics and that there are a lot of people getting involved it's starting to reach sort of a higher profile um but at the same time the level of sophistication in analytics and football lags other sports especially basketball well baseball is a completely different sport but especially in, in basketball or and even other sports um is it in danger of becoming a fad? I I know that Chris uh, made some comments earlier this year at a conference in London where he said that it's that Alex is in danger of stagnating. Mm. And if that's true, why is that happening? How can we reverse that? Well, I think um, I think it, it 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 is potentially true a little bit. Um, uh, I, you know, I think I think there needs to be there. There needs to be um, just continued development and patience with it. I mean, I think I think that the hard thing is, yeah, you look at some of the sophisticated things that they're doing in basketball or they're doing in baseball. Although, as you say, that is a, a very different sport, and and. Uh, it's hard not to feel bad about soccer at times. It's like, wow, look at that cool stuff. Well, the the, the fact is, you need to, you need to, you need to walk before you can run. And I think Simon Gleave at Infostrata has been very adamant about 
this attitude. And I think, and, and, and to his credit, I think it, 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 it's right. It's hard not to, it's hard not to get jealous at times of thinking, wow, look at those cool things that they're doing in American football or doing in basketball or ice hockey, uh, uh has some cool stuff going on. And you think, oh man, what's going on with soccer? And the fact is it's soccer is, is, is behind. It's ha- has lagged behind. Of course, as we say, as, as we tell the story, that a number of people know in the book that, in fact, soccer was arguably first in the world in terms of analytics in the form of Charles Reap and the work that he did in the 50s. Um, uh, but at the present point, yeah, that soccer is behind other sports. But I, I, I think what it, what it takes is just it, it takes some patience and there's, there's an inevitability about it um, to, to my mind, that I think we we try to advance in the book itself is there's every every industry, every business, every activity, um, for better or worse, it's becoming more analytical and more suffused by data. And soccer, there's there's no no absolutely no reason to think that soccer will be an exception to that trend it will it will inevitably become more analytical and more suffused by by data more driven by data um but it it's going to take it's going to take a little longer both because the 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 culture of the sport is such there's uh, maybe greater resistance in certain areas than there is in other sports and it's just and it's a hard as as everybody says who whoever tries to look at it um and as some of the opponents of analytics say, it's a it's a really hard thing to analyze. Um, so it, it is a flowing game of twenty two guys without a lot of stoppage and without a lot of one v one situations where numbers c- can easily be applied. Uh, it's it's harder to apply analysis and numbers to to the sport but that doesn't mean that it's 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 certainly and and one of our goals in the book was to say by no means is it impossible in fact with just some relatively simple things and we do do basic simple straightforward things you can you can gain some insight uh through analysis and through the numbers into the sport great we're almost at the end of our time together yep so the book is called the numbers game and it's available anywhere books are sold, correct? That is correct. Yes, we just, we, we and Chris and I have been, um, our, our expectations have been amazingly ex- exceeded by the, the, the way the book is performed around the world. We just, we just got more good news yesterday. We just learned that Hungary has, sent, we now have a publisher in H- Hungary, which makes our 11th territory around the world. And, uh, it's been really exciting for us. The 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 way the book has has uh, has been translated and has translated to a variety of soccer fans around the world. We just it, we came out in Brazil just um, last month, and um, we've done some media interviews uh, and newspaper interviews with with people down there, and it's it's created a bit of a buzz down there, which is really exciting. And we still have. We still have a number of countries to to go to over the next uh, over the next half year, so that's re- it's re- been really exciting for us. All right, yeah, that's really fantastic. I'm really really excited that you guys are getting uh, more play in Brazil because I think 
Brazilian soccer is very underrated in the way that they approach soccer scientifically. You know, people yep. think it's all Jogo Bonito and people just go out and play, but it seems that they have, it seems that there's a strong analytical component to the way that they play. So I'm, I'm really happy that I'm really happy you guys are, um, that your book is being well received there. So it's oh, great. it's great. Yeah, no, it's very gratifying. Um, so are there any other sites that you'd like to plug? Uh, no, no, nothing, nothing else to plug. Just, uh, if people are interested, uh, as you say, the book's available from, from all the usual outlets, uh, in the U S and the UK, uh, Brazil, um, where else are we out now? Oh, in, in the Netherlands and, uh, and coming, uh, coming soon. Oh, we're out in Finland, uh, and coming soon to Germany and Italy and Japan and so on and so forth. So, so look for it. And, uh, and we hope, we hope fans of a variety of sorts, just, uh, pick up the book and, uh, and it's a it's it's to, to plug the book for a sec. We we wanted to make it a very very readable um, book that will teach you a little bit about soccer, make you think a little differently about it, but hopefully keep you entertained from the first page to the last. Fantastic. Well, that's going to do it for our time here. My guest for this episode of the Soccer Metrics Podcast has been David Sally. David. Thank you so much for joining me. Howard, thanks so much. It was, a, it was a really pleasurable hour. Thanks. No problem. This is Howard Hamilton of Soccer Metrics Research. Thanks for listening to the Soccer Metrics Podcast. Goodbye. You've been listening to the Soccer Metrics Podcast. The Soccer Metrics Podcast is available for free from iTunes, so you can listen to it again and again. To find the notes for this edition and learn more about our research, services, and other resources, visit the site at SoccerMetrics.net. You can also find us on Twitter, at SoccerMetrics. So until next time, this has been another edition of the Soccer Metrics Podcast.